Our Father, we are grateful that through your Son we have become a part of your family. His body was broken and his blood was shed that we might become your sons and daughters. May we always remember. We're thankful for the gift of your word and may your spirit give us understanding as we open it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. As we continue our study in the book of Galatians, in coming to chapter 4, we have seen several important things that I want to review. The first is that Paul continues to use the device of the story. And I'd mentioned several weeks ago that I thought he had sort of set it aside and then sort of gotten into like theology. But in fact, he continues telling stories, using stories. And the chapter opens with the story of the second exodus, the story of the heir. He uses the language of slavery, redemption, and inheritance. And as I said, to make his case against the men from Jerusalem, we don't find him talking about faith and justification, which is really quite unexpected because this is what he had dealt with in the previous chapter. Um, We would think that if Paul was going to confront people who say that you are saved by keeping the law, that his answer would be, no, you're saved by faith. Um, That somehow faith is is the key, particularly in light of chapter 3, where he says, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. But in fact, we've seen as we come to chapter 4, he doesn't do this. To tell the story of Christian redemption, to make the application, he doesn't talk about the doctrines of faith and justification. He talks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We see this in verse number 6. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba Father. Being declared right or righteous in the sight of God is important. Trusting and believing in Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is important. But more important is the reality that undergirds all of this, and that is the reality of the Trinity, who the true God is. This is the foundation upon which Paul builds, and it's the foundation upon which we should build, and not simply our belief system, if you wish, our creeds, but our actions and our living as well. This is to say that the Trinity is not merely some formulation, And as we've seen, the word Trinity is not found in Scripture. This is something that was created uh, several centuries later. Um, But it is the nature of God, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And we are made in God's image, and we are being recreated in the image of God the Son. This is important stuff for us. And for Paul, this is more important, if you wish, than the matters of faith and justification. When we read Paul talking about the Trinity, invariably he tells us what each member has done, is doing, and will do. Paul doesn't say so, but I would argue that the men from Jerusalem, in fact, do not believe in the Trinity. 
in part because they do not believe that Jesus is God, that he is divine. They do not accept him as the Messiah, as God the Son. Having established the basis of truth in verse number 6, in this first passage, Paul, in verses 8, 9, and 10, tells the second story of the Galatians. Formerly, you did not know God. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God. As we saw when we went through this, we must acknowledge that knowing God is what the gospel is all about. That is what the good news is. The call to find true freedom in, is in knowing God and being known by God. Of praising and adoring the true God, whose character and whose actions we can never fully plumb, we can never fully understand. But you notice in verse number 9, and I pointed this out before, that Paul seems to correct himself. He says, now that you know God, or rather are known by God. See, what really matters, or what is more important, is not my knowledge of God, but God's knowledge of me. Because my knowledge of God is small. It's pathetic, to be honest. It is feeble. It's partial. And it changes with my moods. But God knows me fully. And it isn't simply that he knows about me, but that he has brought me into relationship with him. He has established a covenant with me, and now I am his son. And so the choice for the Galatians, as Paul tells their story again, is, okay, are you going to go back to the old way of life, of idolatry? Are you, in fact, going to follow the true God? Continue in freedom, the freedom you have in Christ, the freedom in being known by God, or slavery in going back to the old ways, being enslaved as they were before. I mentioned this before, but the primary trap for us as Christians is not breaking God's laws. That is important. We've had the prayer of confession today. We went through the Ten Commandments. Yes, it is wrong to break God's commandments. But the real trap for us is idolatry of worshiping false gods. And I would say worshiping gods, false gods, that may have Christian titles or Christian trappings. I hope that you all get a chance to read this quote uh, from Sinclair Ferguson. I want to thank Ben for pointing it out and Becca for pointing it out to Ben, who then she told me about it. Um, that oftentimes our focus is so misplaced, but it still is Christian-y enough that it really throws us. Um, the trap for us is idolatry of not looking to God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. What Paul is saying ultimately is, make sure that you are worshiping the true God, and then everything else will fall into place. The passage we studied last Sunday, Paul weaves his story in with the story of the Galatians. He's told us earlier in chapter 1 his story, and into chapter 2, and then in chapter 3 the story of the Galatians. Now he brings the two stories together. And what he tells them, or rather he reminds them, is that when he first went to Galatia, Galatia, he was a mess physically. We don't know the nature of it. Uh, the, the NIV has illness, and as I point out, I don't think this is actually the problem. The ESV, the English Standard Version, has bodily ailment. King James has infirmity of the flesh. Um, I tend to think it was something, not an illness, but something that was wrong with him. And verse number 15 seems to indicate that it might have had something to do with his eyes, because he said, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Um, 
But the reality is, as he tells the story, the Galatians didn't care. They didn't care what Paul looked like. They didn't care that he was a mess. As he says, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. I mentioned last week the words contempt and scorn, particularly contempt, uh, includes with it the idea of spitting at someone, to spit at someone in contempt. They didn't care what he looked like. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And they welcomed him as an extraordinary man with an extra, extraordinary message. Now, suddenly, he's become their enemy because he tells them the truth. Um, and what is he telling them? Actually, he's asking them at this point. Questions are more effective than statements. If they didn't care about Paul's physical condition when he came and preached the gospel to them, why is it now that all they can think about is physical condition? Because the men from Jerusalem say, listen, you need to be circumcised because you're not ethnically a Jew. You know, if you were physically a Jew, you'd be okay, but you're not. And so now you need to change your body in order to be a part of the people of God. And Paul's like, wait a minute. When I came, you didn't care anything about my physical condition. Now these guys come from Jerusalem, and all you can think about is physical condition, that somehow circumcision is what will make you right with God. Don't want to be a Gentile physically. We want to be a Jew physically. And Paul's like, this is something new. You didn't used to care about one's the nature of one's body, because when I came, I was a mess and you welcomed me. The men from Jerusalem were zealous to make them converts. And I was reminded as I was going through this of what Jesus said uh, in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. That is, you are zealous. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. These men from Jerusalem had traveled across land to Galatia, to Asia Minor, in order to make converts. But Paul won't let this happen without a fight. And the last two verses, verses 19 and 20, are intensely personal, particularly verse number 19. My dear children, or my little children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. In verse number 12, Paul had called them brothers. Now he calls them my little children. Um, But then he sort of mixes his metaphors in this last part here because he refers to them as little children. But then he speaks about being in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In some sense, we see a child at three stages here. In the womb, as it comes out of the womb, and as the child begins to develop. Um, In some sense, Paul sees these Galatian believers as still in the embryonic form. They're still in the womb. And Kathy was saying last week that the the image was sort of startling to her of a, a pregnant apostle, of Paul being pregnant. But that's the image that he uses. And one who is pregnant is careful, should be careful to protect the child that she is carrying. The child is not yet fully formed, is fragile. Delicate, needs protection. This is how Paul looks at the Galatians. And when the child is being born, one must also be careful. And when the child is growing up, the mother also cares for the child. Protection is vital in the womb, outside of the womb. The child must develop, or as Paul puts it, until Christ is formed in you. Anything or anyone who threatens that child 
must be dealt with. And if you think of the child outside the womb, anyone who seeks to seduce that child or to lead that child astray cannot simply be ignored. The mother instinct comes out to protect that child and allow the child to continue to develop. This is what we find in Paul. There's so much more to say, but we need to move on with our passage today. Finally, in verse number 21, one would say we've finally come to a story. Because here Paul does, in fact, tell a story. Verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? As we only have Paul's side of the conversation, as is in the case with most of his epistles, um, we have to reconstruct what the other side said that Paul is now writing this. Why does he say these things? Well, it must be because something was said on the other side. And it probably went something like this. The men from Jerusalem said to the Galatians, listen, Paul has told you the story, but he hasn't told you the whole story. If, in fact, Paul would tell you the whole story, he would agree with us. But he didn't. He only told you bits and pieces. We are here to fill in the gaps. And one of those gaps is you need to keep the law and you need to be circumcised. If you want to become proper children of Abraham, part of God's true people, then you must do what the story says. Paul will not let the men from Jerusalem get away with the suggestion that he doesn't know the law. After all, in chapter 1, he said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul knows the law and he says, you want to be under the law? Okay, let's see what the law says. Do you, in fact, know what the law says? Okay, let's talk about that. Paul then proceeds to describe one of the darker stories that we find in the Old Testament. Certainly the Old Testament has its share of it. Look, if you would, at verses 22 and 23. For it is written, okay, here's the story in the law, that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. The story is laid out in Genesis chapter 16 to 21. In chapter 15, promises were made to Abraham. This is the story of the promise that we saw in chapter 3. And the promise included something that seemed impossible. Abraham and Sarah were going to have a son. In chapter 15, verse 4 of Genesis, a son coming from your own body will be your heir. The largest obstacle to this, beyond the fact that up to this point they'd been infertile, was their age. Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65. Well, after waiting 10 years, Sarah said, enough of this. Sarah said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. This is the first verse of chapter 16. According to the customs of that time, Abraham could take the maidservant, that is Hagar, as a concubine, and whatever children she had would belong to her mistress, that is to Sarah. And this made a lot of sense. Uh, Sarah at this point is 75. It's unlikely that she's going to have children. And you could make a case that the promise made to Abraham was that children, or a son coming from his own body, Well, if Abraham slept with Hagar, that would still sort of fulfill the promise, wouldn't it? 
Well, Abraham did as his wife told him. And Hagar did, in fact, conceive a son, Ishmael. A side story that Paul will bring up in a few minutes is that Hagar began to see herself as superior to her mistress because she could have babies and her mistress could not. We'll come to that in a moment. Fifteen years later, when Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100, they in fact did have a son, Isaac. There's a double meaning to Isaac's name. It means he laughs. The negative part of the name is because when God made the promise, Sarah laughed. A year earlier, the Lord Jesus had appeared to Abraham and said, this time next year when I come around, Sarah's going to have a son. Sarah was behind the tent and just laughed. And she denied laughing, but Isaac means he laughs. Um, But there's also a very positive aspect to this name. God has brought me laughter, Sarah said, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. It was great joy that in her old age she finally had a son. So what is Paul trying to tell us? I mean, why, why tell us this? Well, there's one son that came by the slave woman, by Hagar. The other son came by the free woman, by Sarah. This, parenthetically, Sarah's name is not mentioned in this whole book. She's simply referred to as the free woman. So Isaac comes through her. Ishmael is born in the ordinary way, that is a fertile woman of childbearing age. Isaac was born as a result of a promise, a 90-year-old barren woman. That almost seems redundant, doesn't it, to say that a 90-year-old woman is barren? That seems to go without saying. This is the story that is found in the law. What does it mean? What does it represent? Again, we only have Paul's side of the conversation, and it may be that Paul brings up this story because the men from Jerusalem had brought up this story. That they were trying to reinforce their view that, okay, Abraham had two sons, and you know, right now you're with the wrong one, you need to be circumcised and come over to the right one, come over to Isaac's side and be a part of the people of God. Um, Two sons claim to be Abraham's Sons, Ishmael and Isaac, but which was the genuine son? Whose claim was genuine? Well, the men from Jerusalem would say it would be Isaac. It's got to be Isaac. You Gentiles, you're still over there with Ishmael. You need to come over to our side. Paul makes this case. Supposing Abraham had two families, how can you tell which side is which? Which side is the slave and which one is the free? To understand what Paul lays out here, we have to go through a difficult passage. In fact, one commentator writes on this. In all of the New Testament, there is perhaps not a more difficult passage to interpret. Which, of course, is very encouraging when you're trying to prepare a sermon. Verse number 24. These things may be taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are slaves or who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Stop there. Verse 24 uses the word figuratively in the NIV. The ESV has this may be interpreted allegorically. And the King James has also the word allegory. And if you bear with me, let me digress a bit. Prior to the Reformation, it was common to employ a a fourfold method of interpretation of the Bible. Uh, Quadriga, as it was known. This actually literally means a two-wheeled chariot pulled by four horses. 
It was believed that every passage in the Bible was to be interpreted on four different levels. First of all, you have the literal sense, that is, what is being said. This is the obvious meaning. The second was the moral level, that is, what this means for human behavior. The third was the allegorical level, and that is, what does it mean for doctrine? And then the fourth was uh, the mystical or the anagogical, as it's known, uh, also known as the eschatological because it tells us of what is coming in the future. When the Reformation came about, a different approach to scripture was taken that focused on the meanings of the words within the rules of grammar and syntax and how those words were understood at the time they were written because the word, in fact, can change its meaning over time. But when this was written at this point, what did it mean? This is known as the historical grammatical method of interpretation. And it has, if you wish, three steps. First, observation. You look at the text and what does it say? Secondly, interpretation. And then thirdly, application. Each step, each step builds on the other. You can't go straight to application. First of all, you have to see what the text says. You have to interpret it, and then you can apply it. So look at the structure. Look at the words, the forms. We would interpret the book of Psalms, for example, differently than we would the book of Proverbs, different literary forms. And they are very different from what we find in the epistles. And then, secondly, you have to ask questions. What is the interpretation? What is this passage trying to say? And then thirdly, you have to apply it. How does this apply to us today? Now, parenthetically, I think one could make an argument that the gap between quadriga and the historical grammatical method is not as extreme as someone might imagine. Um, that on some level there is interpretation and there is application. You say, okay, okay, why, why this digression? Why talk about this? Because the use of allegory tends to make people nervous. It makes me nervous. What is an allegory? An allegory is a story in which each element represents something beyond itself. And the problem becomes, how do you decide, as you read this allegory, what each thing represents? So, for example, and I've brought this up before, many people have taken the approach to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And using the allegorical method, you begin to ask questions like, well, what does the donkey represent? What do the two silver coins represent? And the innkeeper and the inn. And what do all these things represent? Well, in the historical grammatical method, we would say the donkey is the donkey that the Samaritan put the man on. The two silver coins are the two silver coins he paid to the innkeeper. The inn is the inn where he left the man to recover. The point of the parable is that the Samaritan showed compassion on the man who had been ambushed by thieves. The Samaritan is an example of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. So allegory can get very, very weird. And people have done some pretty strange things with the Bible using the allegorical method. As far as we can tell, allegory is only used two places in the New Testament, both by Paul. The first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which I read several weeks ago when he talks about going through the Red Sea. And he says this is baptism and manna. And the water that came from the rock, this is communion. Um, this is the second place where allegory is used. 
Why he chooses to use it here, I think we can only guess at. But again, I think he uses this passage and the allegory because that's what the men from Jerusalem were doing. And so he's fighting the battle on their ground, using their weapons, if you wish, and trying to correct the false impressions they have given to the Galatians. What makes me nervous about allegory is you don't know what each thing represents. We don't have that problem here. This is actually a wonderful passage because Paul gives us an allegory and then he tells us what each part of the story represents. The women represent two covenants. Sarah and Hagar are the two women. The two covenants are the one made with Abraham in Genesis 15 and the other one is the covenant made at Sinai in which the law was given. Okay. What does this mean? Well, Paul fills it out a bit more in the verses that follow. Verses 25 and 26. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem that is above, or the Jerusalem that is above, is free and she is our mother. Suddenly we find that we're given six pairs of twos through this passage here. We have two mothers. We have two sons, we have two covenants, we have two mountains, Sinai and Zion, and Zion is not mentioned, two cities, the earthly and the heavenly Jerusalem, and two conditions, being free and being in bondage. Okay, how does Paul get to this, and how does he get to this interpretation? He gives this allegory, but how does he get to this interpretation? The contrast here, which we see from chapter 3, is between promise and law. This is the covenant made to Abraham and the covenant made with Moses. This is the promise God made to Abraham, and this is the law that was given to Moses. The men from Jerusalem are saying to the Galatians, you need to be over here. You need to be with the law. And Paul says, I don't think so. Because the story, the overarching story, is that of the promise that God made. So Paul says, okay, let's take that story. Guys from Jerusalem, you want to tell stories about Sarah and Hagar? Okay. Within the story, Sarah was promised a son. And Isaac was that son. Hagar, on the other, on the other hand, was simply an instrument, a tool. No promises were made. Sarah told her husband, I want you to go sleep with her. She can have a son, and he will be mine. Her son was not a son of promise, but a son of the flesh. Isaac is a result of grace and mercy. Ishmael was the result of human effort. One might even say human sneakiness, contrivance, man trying to figure things out on his own. Isaac is a result of grace and Ishmael of human effort. Okay, I think we can get that. But how is it that Paul gets Hagar representing Sinai? Well, we do know that Hagar was a maidservant, but I don't think that's what it's about. Rather, we need to go back to what Paul said regarding the story of the law and the story of the second exodus. What we find is that the law was, in fact, something that enslaved. Chapter 3, verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law locked up until faith should be revealed. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. 
So, Israel, people of God, chosen by God, you are enslaved by the law until the Messiah comes to liberate you in the second exodus from the law. So the law doesn't represent promise. It doesn't represent Isaac. It has to represent Ishmael, the son of flesh. And so Hagar represents Mount Sinai. That's the connection there in the allegory. The maid servant is, in fact, Sinai. And her children are still in slavery. The present city of Jerusalem in slavery with her children. The men from Jerusalem, and boy, at this point, that title sort of speaks volumes. The men from Jerusalem say, we're from Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. We have authority. That's where the church was started. We know what we're talking about. Um, Paul says, the earthly Jerusalem? You mean the connection with Sinai? With Ishmael? With Hagar? Uh, I don't think that's the way you want to go. Hagar is on the same side as, or Jerusalem is on the same side of the equation as Hagar, Ishmael, Sinai, and the law. And slavery. On the other side of the equation, we find Sarah, Isaac, promise, and freedom. And in verse 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah 54. Uh, in its original context, a radical verse. Isaiah 54, uh, verse 1, but it's verse 27 here in Galatians. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who had a husband. In a culture in which barrenness and infertility was considered shameful and a mark of disgrace, to tell someone who was barren could not have children to be glad was counterintuitive. But it is a wonderful promise to God's people that they were in fact going to be judged and they were going to be judged severely to the point that they would be seen almost as barren. But out of that would come great fruitfulness, speaking of the Messiah and the church after that. Paul, now having given us the allegory, makes three conclusions. The first is in verse 28. Galatians, you are the children of promise. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. In light of what he had said earlier, this is both startling and comforting. Startling because he had said that Christ being formed in you, which hinted at a process that had just begun and which in fact could be, well, it seemed to indicate that the process could be interrupted. That this wasn't a done deal. And yet, he calls them brothers and he says that they are children of promise. He says, until Christ is formed in you, that really seems to leave the door open. Not quite sure what, how this is going to go. And yet it's comforting because Paul says, you are my brothers and you are the children of promise. They're just like Isaac. Miraculous. The results of grace and amazing. I think sometimes we are so comfortable with the notion of salvation that we forget the wonder of it all. For a person to become a child of God is even more miraculous than a hundred-year-old man and a ninety-year-old woman having a child. But they're both miraculous, and they are both the results of God's grace. 
We are brought from darkness into light. We are brought into the family of God, into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point he makes is in verse number 29. And that is that persecution is part of the equation. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. This is mentioned in Genesis chapter 21, only in passing. Ishmael was 13 years old when Isaac was born. So he's 13 years old. He's the older brother, half-brother. And by the time Isaac reached the age of being weaned, um, it seemed that, well, it's, we're told that Ishmael mocked Isaac. As much, we don't know what it was. Paul sees it as persecution. It's very much sort of like his mother did with Sarah, that she showed contempt for Sarah. Look, I can have babies and you can't. And now Ishmael saying to Isaac, I'm the older brother, you're the younger brother. Um, Paul says it's, it's the same way still. When you have those who are the children of the flesh, they will in fact persecute those who are the children of promise. Those who are born by the power of the Spirit, yes, you should expect persecution. And again, I have to wonder if this is part of what the men from Jerusalem were telling the Galatians. You know, if Paul is such hot stuff, if he has such a wonderful message, why is it he gets beat up everywhere he goes? I mean, if he's telling the truth, why does he keep getting persecuted? And Paul's like, well, you know, Ishmael with Isaac, people against us, it's part of the equation. Those who are born of the Spirit, those who are children of promise, should expect to be persecuted. The third point is a bit difficult from verse number 30. And it is, cast out the slave woman. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. This is actually part of the story. Sarah went to Abraham and said, they've got to go. I've got my son, they've got to go. And as much as it broke Abraham's heart, he had to send Hagar and Ishmael off. And as cold as it may sound, to those who look to the law for their salvation, they can't be a part of the family of God. You cannot take two positions at the same time. You can't say, Jesus is the Messiah, he's fulfilled the law, we, we are to be united with him, and at the same time say, oh, we are the children of God because of circumcision and keeping God's law. You can't do both. Because the second position says the first one doesn't mean anything. If circumcision is the answer, and if keeping the law is the answer, as Paul says at the end of chapter 2, then Christ died for nothing. So, when the people come together in Galatia, if you have people who say, got to keep the law, and Paul says, they've got to go. They cannot be a part of the family of God. And you know, in this culture, we're so inclusive, that sounds so radical and so, dare I say, unchristian. But when we stand before God, there will be a separation. And at that time, the children of promise will be separated from those who are the children of the flesh. We who are the people of God now in this world need to show that separation already. So that if someone says, I want to be a part of your congregation, but I do not believe that Jesus is the way of salvation, we would have to say, we're very sorry, but you cannot be a part of the people of God. And Paul says, the men of Jerusalem, they've got to go. They've got to be cast out. You can't say it's all about being a Jew 
and say it's union with Christ, it's one or the other. And since we are the people of promise, the others must go. Ishmael and Hagar must be cast out. Paul ends with verse number 31. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. That is to say, we are God's people by grace. We are not slaves. We are free in Christ. And we are brothers and sisters. This is what makes us the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, difficult though it is many times. I do pray that your spirit would give us understanding, more than that, application in our lives, where we find ourselves tending to look to ourselves and our efforts and how much effort we put into it rather than looking to you and to your Son with whom we are united. We are by your grace and only by your grace the children of promise. We have your Spirit. May your Spirit cause us to think on these things in the days to come. May we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well.